0: And our nation has gone through a very challenging time this year. But I want the American people to know that from the very first day, President Donald Trump has put the health of America first. That was Vice President Mike Pence during Tuesday night's debate defending President Trump's handling of the COVID epidemic. A tough sell when the national death toll exceeds 210,000, and the number of new cases continue to rise in nearly half the states, not to mention the White House itself. But Olivia Troy, who served as Pence's top advisor on the coronavirus task force, has a very different perspective than our former boss. She resigned in late July, fed up with the president's consistent downplaying of a virus she and others had known was every bit as deadly as the scientists predicted. We'll talk to Troy about what she witnessed from the inside on the Coronavirus Task Force. And we'll talk to Yahoo News political correspondent Andrew Romano about where the race stands in the aftermath of the president's own COVID problems on this episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by the aforementioned Andrew Romano. Andrew, welcome back to Skullduggery. We were going to talk, uh, we are going to talk about the vice presidential debate, but we got the news this morning that uh, President Trump is pulling out of the next debate, uh, saying that he's not going to, uh, doesn't want to have a virtual debate as the Commission on Presidential Debates has called for, and therefore he's going to sit it out. Andrew, what do you make of that?
3: Strikes me as another unforced error for Trump, uh, akin to him ending the talks over uh, COVID-19 stimulus. I don't really understand the political logic. It seems just like he wants to avoid a repeat of his first debate performance, which was very poorly received by voters. I, I just don't think voters look kindly on candidates pulling out of debate, so no matter what the excuse is. There's, there's really no reason why a virtual town hall debate couldn't work. Do you guys see this
2: differently? Well, I well, uh, first of all, I, I will say that I don't I don't know that this is set in in stone I right, would not right. be was fir- ask would not, not be I the want, first yeah. time that Don- Donald Trump, you know, reversed himself. <clears throat> I see that the Biden campaign put out a statement saying essentially that Trump is afraid to face the voters cuz that's a town hall and he'd have to take questions from from voters and Donald Trump is never likes to be told that he's afraid of anything and so he could he could easily tweet this afternoon. He may be doing it right now that he's going to do it. So we'll have to see what happens. But even, even if he does that, it's an unforced error because he just looks erratic and not confident. And he opens himself up to all of that kind of criticism.
0: You know, there is a speculation among the scientists. and i I heard our own Dr. Patel last night on MSNBC joining in that speculation that the steroids and uh, treatments the President is getting is only making him more manic and more erratic. Um, yeah, I
2: was going to say, I'm glad you said more manic and more erratic. <laughs> yeah, because what I was going to say was, you know, How would you tell the difference whether he's on steroids or not?
3: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. But they do, they, they do give you, you know, when he says, I feel better than I felt in 20 years. I mean, that's, that's pretty consistent with what these, these steroids do. They give you a kind of euphoric feeling. You feel kind of invincible. And it, it does seem like at least whatever the cause, he is making some politically unwise decisions in the wake of his return to the white house, whether it is on stimulus or on these debates, I just don't see the political upside for him, to be honest, of either of those decisions. And the fact is, he's trailing in the polls by about 10 percentage points on average now. After the first debate, Biden picked up some ground, Trump lost some ground, you're back 10 points in with less than a month to the election. He's The only opportunities you have to change that are these debates basically. Yeah, there I was mean, a lot not- of chatter
2: there was a lot of chatter about how generally speaking these pre- even these presidential debates don't make much of a difference. You you kind of have to go back to 1960, maybe Reagan against Walter Mondale. But that doesn't seem to be the case this time around. It sounds like that, that kind of implosion in the first uh, debate um, really did move
3: the numbers. And yeah, we'll coupled to- with the outbreak in the White House of COVID, which, which reinforces this idea, I think, among some voters that the administration has not been responsible, uh, has been careless in their handling of the pandemic. We're seeing that movement in the polls. And again, the fact is, even if you don't think the remaining debates could will reverse that, that what other opportunities does does Trump have it it's certainly a rally uh, instead of a debate is not going to affect anything i mean he's really got to roll the dice and get into the you know onto the debate stage with with Biden otherwise i don't see how he changes the dynamic really
0: so we were going to uh, we do want to talk about the Pence Harris debate which i thought actually was well certainly was a better debate than the Biden Trump debate i thought You know, both candidates sort of did what they set out to do, getting their talking points on. But, man, it really was frustrating when neither candidate answered the questions that they were posed. I mean, they completely ignored the questions. I mean, the question to Pence about abortion and if Roe uh, was overturned, what would he uh, recommend Indiana do in terms of abortion? Uh, But Harris, the same thing. I mean, the very first question that Susan Page put to Harris about covid is what would a biden harris administration do would it impose a new national lockdown would it require a national mask mandate and harris gave her answer about all the failures quite justified in her case against what the trump administration has done but she never answered the question
3: She she said something along the lines of, you know, we have a plan for contact tracing and testing and blah, 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 like what anyone would do. Right. But she didn't engage with the more controversial aspects like the mask mandate, which Biden has said that they would do. And uh, a a national lockdown, which he said he would be open to if cases Spiked. Um, you know, I, maybe I'm more cynical than you, Mike. I, although I kind of doubt it. You've covered a lot of these things. That's just how politicians debate. No, to me, I, know, but, I know, but to completely I, this is going to sound terrible, but it was almost refreshing to see like some political skill on display after the first debate. I'm sorry, if, Trump.
0: if I'm if I'm Susan Page, I don't let it go. I say, excuse me, Senator. Excuse me, Mr. Vice President. You didn't answer the question. Let's ta- have another
3: go at it. I vote for Mike Isakoff for debate. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah, uh, my guess
2: is that will never happen. I don't think uh, I'm on any short list. the, The parties
3: will never agree to it, and nor will
2: the debate commission. Okay, so here's the way I see it. I think that Kamala Harris had the better case to prosecute, and she did a pretty good job. You know, the American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country, she said, and she You know, repeatedly referred to the numbers 210,000 people who have died. She referred to them as dead bodies at one point. The 7 million cases, one in five businesses that have been shuttered, 30 million Americans uh, filing for unemployment. That was pretty powerful stuff. Pence, I think, was kind of the master of deflection. But at times, I thought he was kind of too cute by half. And a couple of examples, after the Harris broadsides against the Trump administration— on the pandemic, he responds by saying that her words are a disservice to the sacrifices of the American people. But she hadn't criticized the American people. She very, very, <laughs> very uh, uh, directly criticized the Trump administration. And then one other example, which is that when he tried to argue that the, Bi- the Obama-Biden administration handling of the swine flu epidemic in 2009 was much worse, that if it had been a more lethal Disease, two million Americans would have died. Well, that if was doing a lot of work there. And I thought that was um, not particularly uh, effective because he was inventing a situation that just was not, that never happened.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Two, I mean, two things about that. On that pivot, that sort of elision where he's, you know, kind of pretends that Harris is criticizing the American people, I think that Pence is a very skillful sort of translator of Trump into the tones and terms of like ordinary American politics. Like he, better than anyone else, I think he's able, at least rhetorically, to make Trump seem like just another Republican politician. That's been his task throughout this administration. But that that really showed the strain of it, like to, to pivot, to saying a criticism of the administration's pandemic response was being disrespectful to the American people. I think that was a moment where you really saw how hard he was trying to work, and I don't think anyone watching really bought that. Um, And so, you know, it's a very difficult task to make Trump seem normal. He tried his best, but I'm not sure it changes. I mean, I think,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think bottom line, you know, like really all vice presidential debates, but I think this one in particular, because things really do seem so kind of baked in, this is not going to change the trajectory of the race at all. And and I think you know, in all likelihood, you know, sometime later today, or maybe it's happening right now, as we record this podcast, uh, you know, Trump will do something or tweet something that will completely overshadow the debate. And the only thing that anyone's going to remember is that very large fly, fly <laughs> that landed on Mike Pence's <laughs> yeah, right. meticulous white mane, which actually, was quite a moment. I got to say, I don't know if uh, I like to think that like millions of Americans were doing the same thing as I was. I kept like scratching the screen of my, my tablet because I thought, there was something on it or there was an insect on it, but nothing happened.
3: And I said, is it it actually on his head? And it was. Yeah. I mean, look, this may end up being one of the more memorable vice presidential debates as pundits kind of hyped it beforehand, but that will be solely because uh, an insect landed on, on Mike Pence. (laughs) There's no other, nothing else anyone will remember.
0: So Andrew, the only thing I can see that, is can change the trajectory of this race uh, right now is next week uh, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. And I don't know how that will play. I think there may be a danger to Democrats to overplay their hand on this, go after her to personally uh, raise questions about her religious faith, I assume they're smart enough to know that that's a danger for them. But, you know, other than that, I don't see anything that can uh, prevent this um, election from becoming the blowout. It looks like it's going to be right now.
3: Big prediction there. Um, Again, it's 2020, so we never know. I would be surprised if Democrats overplayed their hand in the Amy Coney Barrett hearings they've been very careful not to criticize her in personal uh, or religious terms despite the fact that republicans keep saying that they have and i think that'll probably be their strategy throughout the hearings their argument is going to be more of a process argument that that it's, it's wrong and hypocritical uh, and we're within a, an election at this point and so we should wait for the voters to have their say just as republicans uh, said with uh, Neil Gorsuch, I would say
2: by the by the way that the, you know the the impact that these the political impact that these hearings are going to have will not be on the presidential race, but will be on the race uh, for control of the Senate because you have a number of Republicans who are in tight races who sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. First of all, you've got. Lindsey Graham, who's in a really surprisingly tight race against Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. He's the chairman of the committee. He'll be presiding over it. That could present him opportunities. This could help him in very conservative South Carolina. But, you know, it's also potentially perilous for him as well. And then you've got Tom Tillis in, in North Carolina. I think Joni Ernst is on uh, Senate Judiciary. Am I remembering that right? Um, she's in a tough race, obviously, in Iowa.
0: But, you know, it does occur to me that Trump may have complicated uh, the Democrats' strategy today by pulling out of the debate, because remember— these hearings are going to be conducted virtually and the Democrats are saying, no, no, it has to be in person, right? Uh, That's unacceptable when it's a Supreme Court nominee. And now Trump saying, no, he wants an in-person debate, not a virtual one. I think it's going to make it a little harder for Democrats to maintain that we need in-person hearing argument.
2: Yeah, I, I look, I don't think that was a particularly strong argument to begin with. I think Democrats are grasping at straws. Um, you know, they're and, just
0: and trying to figure out any way to delay this past November way to 3rd. Right. Exactly, yeah.
2: exactly. Right. Because I still think if something happens and, you know, God forbid, you know, more people on the committee uh, test positive for COVID or there's some new information that surfaces and it is delayed past the election, I still think— It becomes much harder for uh, Mitch McConnell to ram this through if the Democrats, if Biden wins and the Democrats take back the Senate, he will, um, you know, he's not going to have a all of a sudden like a a strike of like his own personal conscience (laughs) that it would be anti-democratic to push it through. But I think some of some of members of his caucus will have a hard time, you know, backing him on that.
0: Last thought, Andrew, how do the Senate races look to you?
3: Well, there's probably about. 10 vulnerable Republican seats that that Democrats uh, have a decent chance of winning. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's going to be that many. I would be very surprised, but that's a pretty big playing field. And it's, it's, I I would say it's more likely than not, although a fairly close call at this point, that Democrats win back control of of the Senate.
0: Well, if that's the case, uh, Washington will be very different Come January, and we'll have to figure out a new introduction to this show. I think um, since we won't. <laughs> well, be able to I, keep just say, Trump. I, I think
2: <laughs> there, you know, may not be the same kind of skullduggery. Maybe it won't be at quite the same high pitched level, but there'll still be skullduggery. All
0: right. Well, That's let's, uh, Andrew. Thanks. Let's stick to our uh, our game plan and uh, get to our first guest, guest Olivia Troy. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, guys. We are now joined by Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Pence, served as his top aide on the coronavirus task force until she resigned in late July. Olivia, welcome to Skullduggery.
1: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm sure you watched the debate last night between the vice president and Senator Harris and listened to his defense of the uh, Trump administration's handling of the COVID crisis. Your reaction to what you heard last night?
1: You know, it was in keeping with what I've seen from the vice president throughout my tenure on his being on his team. I think he almost to a flaw sometimes, really defends the president and his actions. And I, you know, there was a lot of really hard, a lot of hard work that happened on the task force under Vice President Pence, and I certainly saw him try to do the right thing at moments when it really mattered, and I saw him reach out to governors, and I saw him respect the task force experts and the doctors on the task force, but he has been in an impossible situation from day one, especially on this pandemic, and Watching the debate last night, I saw that playing out once again, where he has to defend something that's just, quite frankly, not defendable.
2: Olivia, and and we should point out, by the way, that for those listeners who don't already know this, that you left the administration, you issued a a fairly stinging uh, video critique of President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, and have also endorsed President uh, Joe Biden, and you're a lifelong Republican, is that correct?
1: I am. I actually started my career at the Republican National Committee. I was an Eisenhower intern during my college days. Mm -hmm. I actually wrote my senior thesis my senior year on the Republican Party, being the party of Lincoln, and then went on to become a Schedule C, which is what they call political appointees. I was a President Bush appointee in his administration during my days early on in my career at the Pentagon after 9-11. I decided that I would pursue more of a career in national security after 9-11, something I lived and has influenced a lot of people who have worked in the national security space, like myself. Right. I want to ask
2: you, I mean, you know, you've just said that Vice President Pence, you know, was in an impossible situation having to defend his boss. You've said that you have a lot of respect for Vice President Pence. What did you see internally? I mean, did the vice president ever show any daylight between him and President Trump? Did you ever get the sense that he, or see any actual evidence that he disagreed with President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic?
1: Well, the vice president, he's a consummate professional and gentleman. He keeps his cards very close. And what I will say is, there were times and discussions in the task force where there were certainly some very overt political influences and dynamics and views being stated where the vice president did, you know, try to steer the conversation back to the data and he respected the doctors. I mean, I saw him listen and take it in. And I think when you saw him, you know, during the press conference conferences, I can tell you that For him, the conversations that I personally had with him was it was important to him to get the facts. And he would say to me, I just want the facts. I want to tell people what's really going on here and I want to inform them. And I want to be the person that is relaying the accurate information in a manner that they can understand. And so I think, you know, that was my view on what I saw him do. There were certainly moments where I saw his body language at times look, I guess, stressed or at times he looked embarrassed during task force meetings when the president would not would attend. I think we all sometimes looked around the room or looked away and looked down at the table or looked down at the floor when the president would sometimes, quite frankly, go off on rants during a task force meeting when we were actually supposed to be working through numerous agenda items that really mattered that were time critical because of this virus. And we knew it was spreading.
2: Give us a sense of that. Take us inside a task force meeting that Donald Trump attended. What kind of rants are you talking about?
1: Well, the very first one, uh, I remember early on during the pandemic, I do remember the president walking in. I was seated to the right of him. I was sitting sitting on the back bench, as they call it, which for those of you who aren't familiar with the situation room, there's a table in the situation room in one of the larger conference rooms. And then you have chairs that are on the second row around the table, because usually at the table, there's going to be cabinet level people or the main principal sitting at it. And then the staff or honestly deputies sit in the back bench. So I was sitting in the back bench to his right. And he, he walked in and, you know, we, we were briefing him. The doctors were briefing him. And he, you know, he asked the right questions. He says, he's, he talked about it. He said, you know, how bad is this? How is it, is it like the flu? Is it worse than the flu? You know, tell me the gravity of this. And, you know, they said, yes, this virus is worse than the flu. It is more contagious and we think it's likely deadlier than the flu. And he took that in, he took it in seriously. But then he, then he would reverse course, sort of, so to speak. And then he would say, you know, well, maybe, well, maybe COVID is a good thing because I, you know, I don't like shaking hands with people. And he said, I never liked shaking hands. I was a business person. You know, I had to shake hands then, and now I'm a politician. And he's like, and when you're a politician, you have to shake a lot of hands, and it's disgusting with these disgusting people. And I I just remember just being shocked at the moment. I, I, I think I visually reacted, um, and then I caught myself because, you know, you're in the task force and you don't know who's watching. And I said, oh my gosh, the people just see my, ma- my jaw drop because I just couldn't believe that, even if he was joking, that he would say that when people are going to be very affected in our country by this, and that's Look, the first, Olivia. The first, the first when when he
0: said that and talked about he didn't like shaking hands with these disgusting people, did anybody say anything? And did the vice president? Uh, you said before there were times he looked uncomfortable or uneasy. Did you see his reaction when? President Trump said this.
1: I saw people look down or look away. Uh, You know, when the president goes on these rants or, you know, when when he goes and, you know, goes off topic, it's really just awkward for everyone in the room. I mean, there was another instance where he came into a task force meeting. Again, we were supposed to be talking about additional travel restrictions or what we needed to do when we saw the virus spreading in different regions of the world and what that meant for trying to slow the spread here and figuring out where people were coming from and how we we're gonna handle this. Or we were talking about, you know, evacuating Americans from cruise ships. I know the public saw what was happening and we were we were struggling. We we're trying to figure out where we we're gonna quarantine these people, how we were gonna help people get off these ships. And he came to this meeting, he's sitting there, and this is a separate meeting from the one I talked about where he talks about wanting to shake hands. And he sits down, and he says, all right, well, what do we have to talk about? And he's looking through the agenda and he, we start. And then out of the blue, he says, did everybody watch Tucker Carlson yesterday? And he goes off. And then he, for 45 minutes, talked about how upset he was about his preferred news network and what they had been talking about and what they were saying. And then he started to task people in the room. You know, I remember him tasking Hope Hicks and looking around the room or say, saying to Kellyanne Conway, like, who's going to take care of this? who's going to call them and ring them in? Like, and you know, what what was he, what was he
0: complaining about at that point?
1: He, you know, he was upset at how they had treated someone that was on the senior white house staff. And then he, I mean, this is not, not a rare occurrence. He, he watches, you know, he watches one network and he gets upset if they speak out against him or if they give any, they shed any light between him and them and or they show anything that's not necessarily so. 100% supportive of him. And this went on for 45 minutes. I remember looking down at my watch because I am the person that would work behind the scenes to put the agendas and coordinate with the task force experts. And I remember looking down saying, this has been going on for a while. Are we going to get through anything that really needs to be discussed and these decisions that need to be made? And so 45 minutes of that, and then we started the task force meeting, and then we started to have these discussions. And then 20 minutes or half an hour went by, and out of the blue, he went back to the original statement that he'd made at the beginning of the meeting.
0: And, and just to be clear, so this is a task force meeting, so I assume Dr. Burks is there, Dr. Fauci is there. There's a lot of professionals and scientists in the room. Nobody speaks up and says, Mr. President, can we stay focused on what we're here for? everyone you
1: know they look away and they exhibited what i would say extreme patience with the situation knowing that by the way this task force meeting was also happening over a weekend where you know we worked most weekends but you know this this was pulling them away from the actual work and also pulling them away from time with their families when we didn't get a lot of time with our families. And this is what we're hearing instead. And, you know, you don't do that. Uh, I didn't see people push back like that because when you do that, you're probably going to get fired.
2: Let me just follow up on that because as Mike points out, you have some of the most respected public health professionals in the world on that task force in uh, Tony Fauci and also Deborah Burks and, and others. I understand the point you're making about, you know, not, pushing back against the president like, like that. And that might be counterproductive. But what was the dynamic between those professionals and President Trump? Looking at it from the outside, it's hard not to see tensions. And uh, sometimes it's, you know, the president is outright criticizing the members of his own task force. But what, on the inside, what was your impression of how, say, Tony Fauci viewed the president and his handling of this pandemic crisis?
1: I think your impressions being on the outside are 100% accurate. It was a struggle on a daily basis. I I saw Dr. Fauci. I remember actually a moment where the photographer, the White House photographer, when she took a photo and Dr. Fauci was the beginning of a task force meeting and he had his head in his hands looking down at the table. And it was that to me captured the entire essence of what these people were feeling every single day.
2: I guess the White House never put that picture out. Uh, I mean, it, it does sound like LVJ during the Vietnam War when he has his head in his hands. I mean, that would have been very powerful. You don't happen to have a copy of that, do you?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> I do not. Um, I wish I did because I think the world of Dr. Fauci. I but what do
2: you life- think he was going through in that moment? What was he thinking?
1: You know, it's really hard when you're trying to just tell the truth and and inform, right? And he is basing it on science and data and facts. And he has the truth by what the data and the science says on his side. And I think the doctors all had that. I saw Dr. Burks and I saw Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC. He especially was very bullied. I would call it bullying at times and the pushback that they all received. And I... You know, I have a lot of respect for them. I I honestly, it was a great honor to be in the room with some of these people because as a national security professional, I operate in the intel community. I operate in the homeland community. I never probably would have gotten across paths until this moment. And I saw the expertise that they brought to the table firsthand. And it was was amazing. It was incredible that we had these, these assets to help us get through this. But what I saw was, they were constantly being undermined by the political uh, inner circle to the president. And at times, you know, their their data was disregarded or it was manipulated at times, which was awful uh, to to watch what was happening behind the scenes. And it was even more disturbing, I think, you know, to wake up sometimes <laughs> to a tweet disparaging one of them or to wake up and find a news article, I mean, the one about Dr. Fauci, where all the ways that he'd been wronged by another person, Peter Navarro inside the White House, was just so egregious and appalling to me, because none of these people deserve that treatment, and it was done in a way that, you know, was was to discredit them, and I just think that not only does that discredit the person, but I really just think it speaks to President Trump and this White House and the way it operates, if you if you say something that doesn't go along with their narratives that they are trying to control, they will come after you and they're vindictive, And it, it is hurtful because in this situation, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about a pandemic.
2: And just to be clear, just to be clear, you you are saying that President Trump either directly or through his staff bullied the health professionals. In the administration and on that task force.
1: Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen the changing of guidelines. I've seen how hard it's been for Dr. Redfield to navigate these dynamics. Um, I've personally seen Dr. Hahn, the head of the FDA, who I have a lot of respect for. I do not question his integrity at all, and I have seen how people behave towards him. For example, when he, you know, pulled back the emergency use authorization with for hydroxychloroquine chloroquine, for example. That was a big deal. And I think people were angry about it. But he was doing it because his agency and the scientists and the regulators were saying, look, this is the evidence that we have. This is the data. And we've got to protect Americans. I mean, we've got to walk this back. And he did it with no hesitation. He did what his people and the career people were saying. He followed that. But he took heat for it. For it, I mean, I saw it in meetings firsthand. Olivia, I think we, we
0: all know and have seen the president's rhetoric during this time where he was downplaying the severity of the virus and suggesting it was going to go away. But I just want to drill down on specific steps that should have been taken and weren't or were taken and shouldn't have been taken. And if you could sort of point to a moment where the administration made a wrong call a specific instance where you believe it made a wrong call that made things worse.
1: Honestly, I think the fundamentally, the basic thing that went wrong was the politicization of wearing a mask. I really that is. I but, know, it, that sounds but isn't a it
0: true? Isn't it true that early on, the utility of the mask was not recognized? Even Dr. Fauci was not. It was somewhat dismissive of what a mask would do, that that was the impression, that was the statements coming from top scientists in the beginning of this.
1: Right, and at the beginning, I think, you know, I will say that there were so many unknowns about this virus, right? At the beginning, uh, honestly, we didn't have access into Wuhan for quite some time. Uh, I know that, you know, HHS and Secretary Azar, they, I mean, they were fighting to get on the ground to really do with the CDC, to really explore what was really happening. And they were really trying to understand how it spreads. They were trying to learn about the virus, which was critical. So at the beginning, we didn't have a lot of the details. I mean, when we, along the way, found out, you know, that it was, you know, that it spread through aerosol. We know that today. Uh, we knew that fairly early on as we discovered that. And I think what you're seeing as a scientist, you know, they're learning along the way on how it spreads. And we also saw, you know, learning that it was, you know, that people would walk around and they would be asymptomatic, but still shedding the virus or carrying it. That was a game changer for us, right? Because then it was like, well, how, now we have a completely different challenge than what we thought. I mean, if you could be sitting next to someone who looks completely fine, and they give it to you, uh, I mean, and you could get really, really sick, well, then we've gotta be taking different precautions, which is why you see, I think, the dynamics change. It's just a fact of learning what the data and the science was saying, and that shifts.
2: Well, Olivia, did you later, if you flash forward a little bit, did you wear a mask? And what do you make of the outbreak inside the White House, where you have now 30 some odd uh, White House staffers who've been infected?
1: So I think, you know, in terms of White House protocols, we were, we were late to catch up to the game. I mean, they, they eventually instituted temperature checks at the gates, which was prudent. Uh, and then they eventually said, you know, they put masks out for everyone to wear. But the truth is people didn't really follow that. I mean, you saw people maybe in the National Security Council. I certainly saw the Deputy National Security Advisor. He walked around, Matt Pottinger. Matt said, Pottinger, right? Yes, yeah. Matt Pottinger said, you know, People need to be wearing masks. We need to go on like shift work. We need to socially distance. He from day one was on top of this. But I will say that, you know, if you walked around the West Wing, people weren't wearing masks. People were sitting right outside the vice president's office without a mask. I mean, and granted, what you'll hear is, well, we were being tested every day, but the test produces a lot of, you know, false negatives and false positives. So, the, the test, I mean, yes, it's it's helpful when you're getting tested every single day because that's how you're going to catch it eventually if you are carrying the virus, but not everyone was being tested. To be frank, I was a little, uh, I have to say, appalled when I learned just recently that the president wasn't being tested every day because I had been misled then to believe that he that was uh, and that the vice president was. I certainly thought that the vice president was getting tested every day, so that gives me pause. But... The truth is like this virus was around us and we were not we were following two different things uh, i think the experts were saying you know sl- to slow the spread you got to socially distance you got to wear a mask this is critical this is how we're going to get ahead of it and inside of the white house i think the doctor dr Conley, and the white house medical unit was certainly offering these guidelines and they were making masks available but in the west wing they weren't being followed. And I, I wore a mask at times. Um, I did not wear a mask in, in meetings. You'll see photos. I mean, we don't have the mask on during meetings and it, it was awkward at times <laughs> if you're in the room and you're the only one and people will say, Oh no, you know, we didn't bully people. Well, maybe you didn't verbally bully people, but if you're the only one in the room and you're getting the looks and you're getting the looks from very senior people, who think that you're, you know, that the virus is overblown and they don't necessarily think that this is real and that we've, you know, this is over the top sensationalism about it and how deadly it is. That's kind of, that's a very hard dynamic to deal with when you're working in the White House every day and this is how, you know that this is what people are thinking.
0: So, as you know, the the sort of basic White House defense on this is fog of war. We didn't understand the true nature of this for, or our understanding evolved over time. And I want to take you back to what Senator Harris said last night, because it struck me that she may have been overstating what was known early on, and I want to get your reaction. She said... In our very first comments, and here's the thing, on January 28, the vice president and the president were informed about the nature of this pandemic. They were informed that it's lethal in consequence, that it is airborne, that it will affect young people, and that it would be contracted because it is airborne, and they knew that was happening, and they didn't tell you. Was all that clear on January 28th?
1: I think by January 28th, we initially, I think we had some indicating data that it was airborne. I think the question on who it it was affecting, whether it affected children or young people, I think the scientists from what I saw were still trying to understand that. We, we certainly knew that it affected from what we were seeing overseas, right? Uh, I think we certainly knew that it seemed like it was affecting the elderly, that they were they were most affected by it, but there were still, I think at that moment, a lot of unknowns in terms of what was happening. So, I mean, we later find out, you know, there's a mix. The, there's, there's some some data and conflicting data and a, a little bit of confusion on, does it affect younger people? Does it not affect younger people? But I know that the doctors like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks uh, and Dr. Redfield all said, you know, there, it's we don't have enough. Information is inconclusive right now to draw that conclusion. And later it becomes, you know, it affects everybody.
0: But if it was fully understood that it was airborne that early, why did Dr. Fauci initially dismiss the significance of wearing a mask?
1: I think, you know, like I said, I think there was so much information coming out, and I think the scientists were wrestling with, you know, what it what it what is this? How much information do we have on this? What's the truth? And I think, you know, I think we were seeing what was happening in Wuhan. I remember the conversations in the task force. I remember Secretary Azar saying, well, this, from what we can tell, this is what we know. Now, I I do know, I don't think that we had access still to on the ground in China. I know we fought for that for weeks. I remember that. I remember saying, I remember the conversation of saying, we've got to get in there. Uh, We've sent letters. We've had phone calls. They keep saying that we're going to be allowed in but they still would not allow our team. And I think they eventually, I think they reduced the number of CDC experts that they were gonna allow in. And again, I, I think that is critical to understand because the CDC, I mean, they really needed to get in on the ground to help even, you know, China to figure out what was happening and to be part of the WHO response and figure out how do we all globally counter this virus because it went on to affect everyone, right? This is global.
2: Olivia, I want to just ask you a little bit more about what it was like for you personally to be working inside the White House under these very diff- difficult circumstances. And I think you've talked about how you were anguished, how you know you had a hard time sleeping at night. You also did not speak out about it, publicly certainly, I understand that, but also internally you didn't take your concerns to higher level people, I think you've said. Why not, and do you regret that now?
1: Well, I certainly, I certainly had a closed-door conversation with people about how I felt about it. At times, I pushed back on, her, let's say, some of the remarks that I was seeing written. I tried to keep it very factual, and I think I spent a lot of time working with the task force members and agencies to figure out how we would actually move policies forward um, and coordinating them in a manner that would protect Americans. And it was hard. I think it was a very difficult dynamic when, uh, you know, I spent a lot of hours at uh, night talking to some of the principals and strategizing. And then we talk, we would have conversations about, we know that this matters, we know that this is critical. And I would say, you know, I know that the scientists back at the CDC, if that was the agency that was affecting strongly believe that we need to be taking this measure, such as, you know, face coverings for transportation workers, for example, is a basic, uh, was one of the ones that stands out in my head right now. And I would put it on the agenda and knowing that we needed to discuss this and make a decision and move on. And sometimes these items would get pulled off the agenda uh, by other entities, by people on the immediate staff. um, Like who,
0: who would would take it (laughs) off the agenda?
1: Well, at the end of the day, it's the Chief of Staff who makes the call, and you know it it was it was frustrating, and then I would have to go back to the task force and figure out, you know sometimes we would find other interagency bodies to to push this forward. I worked very closely with the National Security Council, but this is how complicated it was. Everything seemed to be a fight, and I just it was hard for me because <laughs> lives matter. Um, you know, and I it was it was incredibly difficult for me at times to kind of watch the political narrative and I knew, I know that it's based on the economy. I get that. I understand that we are in a really tough time. I know that jobs are being affected, I know that families are suffering. But the sooner we can get ahead and you know, control the spread of the virus, the sooner we'll be we'll get the economy back on track. And that's just something that I just didn't understand that the disregard of some of the political people that that just didn't didn't want to play ball with the experts, so to speak. Who, who are you part, talking?
2: About, who are you talking about? I mean, the chief of staff, the president, uh, the vice president's current chief of staff is is uh, Mark Short. Is that who you're primarily talking about?
1: And I certainly, what did, <laughs> I what did certainly he do? had a challenge with Mark Short. Um, and tell and us about others. that. Uh, I think you know he's a hard person to really understand he is an evangelical Christian. I know that he, his beliefs are very in line with the vice president, but at times, you know, when you're tasking staff to find alternate data to the data that Dr. Burks is presenting, I, I just think that that is just on a different level of, of manipulation, if that makes sense, because these other staff that are more junior, so to speak, I mean, they're not medical experts. They're not pandemic experts. They're not doctors. They're not scientists. they they have nowhere near the expertise that Dr. Burks has. And I'm and I personally I don't definitely have don't have the expertise that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. That's not the world that I that I've lived in and operated in when That's not my specialty. And it was those kinds of situations that were very challenging because, you know you're outranked. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm also a career national security professional. And so you walk this fine line where you're trying to do what's right. You're trying to help the people that are trying to do what's right. But you're also already on the losing side of the battle when the narratives of the deep state get talked about, right? Or when you're viewed as though in a lens that right off the bat, you may be undermining things. And I will tell you in my over two years in the White House, I was very dedicated to doing the role in the best way I could for the vice president. I did that unwaveringly, almost to a flaw sometimes during the COVID task wars. But, and it is a struggle that I've seen. And what I've seen, you know, in terms of the undermining and the discrediting of the public health community, it's quite frankly no different than what I've seen the White House do to the national security community and the intelligence community. I mean, when you say the truth, And it doesn't, it's not in line with what they want to hear. They will turn around and discredit you. We've seen that it's a, it's not an unknown pattern, right? We've seen this, we've seen the story before.
0: Yeah. And, and as an example, you resigned, they said you
1: were fired, which
0: was false, correct?
1: Yes. And I, you know, everyone on the VP's team knows the truth I resigned, I was, you know, I was facing an increasingly challenging political environment, the closer the election got. And I just, I just decided- What was the breaking point for
0: you that caused you to resign? Like there must've been a moment that said, I can't take this anymore. What was that?
1: Well, you know, I hung in there for a while longer, but the day of the Lafayette Square, incident where the president walked out, where the protesters were cleared out in such a violent manner. And I had just been walking outside, to be honest. I had been, you know, I was wearing a mask. I was a little cautious because I'm, I'm, I've always been sort of cognizant of the fact that I worked for the vice president and I wanted to protect him and COVID is a real thing. But I did walk out there because I wanted to see what was happening firsthand. I, you know, I've lived in Washington for a very long time And this was a very significant moment for our country and people were speaking out. And I saw peaceful protesters. I saw it firsthand, took photos. I walked around with a very close friend of mine who was on the National Security Council. And I came back to my desk and was working and I had a lot of work to do. And when, you know, I got an email saying, please clear out from Secret Service. And I was very confused as a Homeland person. Because I track all alerts and I track all threats. So I was a little bit also taken aback. I was like, did I miss something? What did I miss? Um, and, but I, you know, I was told to leave and I left and to get home and turn on the TV. Cause I was like, I was worried. I was like, what is happening or, well, what's the threat? What's about to happen? I just, it was so offensive to me to watch that. I, I honestly never came back from that. I remember being very upset that night. I was upset the next day. It was just so egregious to me to watch the president walk across, stand at the church, St. John's, and hold the Bible, but, and, but not say anything. He didn't pray. He didn't speak out to the American public. He, didn't, he could have used that moment to make a difference, to be healing. We're, we were facing a pandemic. There's a lot of hate. And I feel like he is personally part of the rhetoric and hate and the divisiveness, he has encouraged it. And it was, it was just so, <laughs> it was just upsetting on many levels. And that stayed with me for the, for the for days to come. I still did my job, I was still working hard, I was still working on the task force, but I couldn't shake it because I said, you know, he continues to cross the line repeatedly. And some of the enablers around him enable him to continue doing this. And I just, at some point, as it got increasingly harder, I was like, Where, when is this going to end? It's not, it's, it's just everything I've known for the over two years of what I've seen, it just keeps getting worse.
2: Olivia, as, as we're winding down here, I'm looking on, uh, at the wall in, I, I guess, your home office, and I see a framed cov- Time Magazine cover. Is that, that looks like Anthony Fauci? on the cover of Time?
1: It is Dr. Fauci. I think he was, um, he just got, he's on the list of 100 most influential people, and I think he's on the cover, and I was right. happy for him. Uh,
2: two questions. Uh, did he did he give you any words of encouragement while you were there or or as you left or since? How do you think his handling of the coronavirus pandemic and his, you know, many, many months now on the president's task force will, what effect will that have on his reputation and legacy going forward?
1: You know, I I got to know Dr. Fauci really well. I have a lot of respect for him. I certainly saw him go through some pretty tough situations. And, you know, I I won't get into the private conversations I have. I have been in touch with him. Uh, I think, you know, he has said, you know, that (laughs) we had a cordial relationship, uh, working relationship, and we were colleagues. And, that I was critical to the work of the task force. Uh, we spent a lot of time working together. And I think for him, in terms of his reputation- well, would it be,
2: let me just, I know you don't want to get into the intimate conversations you had with him, but would it be fair to say that he has been encouraging to you throughout this, this episode, leaving, leaving uh, the White House and, and going public?
1: I think what, what he has said is <laughs> that takes courage which means a lot to me. And, and it has been hard. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, it, it's still hard for me to talk about it sometimes and it's still very emotional and very real to me. But for him, I think, you know, I guess I, I respect him because at some point, you know, if they're not allowing him to be in a press briefing, which I saw sometimes firsthand and they would pick what task force members would be in the briefing. And if one of them misspoke, and I say that misspoken quotes, because it means that they were, Annoyed with the fact that they had maybe been too forthcoming, you wouldn't see them at the briefing the next day. And I think that Dr. Fauci has stayed true to himself. Like, if he doesn't know something, he's going to tell you he doesn't know something. And if something changed, he'll tell you, you know, why he's changing his opinion on it. And I think he's at the point now where I think, to be honest, he's just trying to get the information out to Americans via the media at this point because it matters. And I guess the public can decide for themselves on what they want to listen to. But I can tell you there are numerous times when these doctors said, you know, there's going to be an increase in cases or there's going to be a spike, especially after Memorial day. And, you know, they're, they were often sort of dismissive about their warnings. And then two weeks later, there'd be a huge spike in whatever state and people, and then we'd be rushing to get PPE out there, or we'd be worried about hospitals being overwhelmed and, time and time again, they proved to be right in their assessments. And so I think at the end of the day for Dr. Fauci and some of these doctors, I think history will you know, look back on this, but they'll know that they tried. Well,
0: Olivia, I think a lot of people listening to you will conclude you too have been true to yourself. So I want to really thank you for uh, sharing your insights uh, into this and um, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, I appreciate you having me on the show.